Friends, we're finishing up our series, as I mentioned earlier, on living a sacramental life. Trying to connect the dots for us between what we do at the table, uh, what we do in baptism, which we're doing in a few weeks, uh, and our everyday lives. What is this, how does this affect the way that we live our lives? Um, how do we live in a sacramental way, which has to do with how do we live in a way that participates in the life that's offered to us? Uh, and we talked about uh, axioms, kind of little thoughts uh, that help us along the path here. The first one was that life is all about divine union. It's about communion with God and with others. The second is that God is always present and at work. The third is that this God who is always present and at work and with whom we are called into communion is just like Jesus. That Jesus reveals what God is really like. This God who uh, is revealed in Jesus meets us in reality. As we get real about where we're at and, and what's going on for real, that God meets us there, not in our fantasies, not in our wishes, not in our hopes for the future or our regrets about the past, but here, right now, whatever's going on, God waits us for us there, and he, he longs to meet us there. Fifth, God cares about all of this more than you do, <laughs> um, which is lovely to know. This is the God who's revealed in Jesus. We don't need to pray as if we're trying to recruit God to come and help us, uh, and a disinterested God, but that God is actually uh, eager to help, that he actually cares and loves more than we do. Uh, and then finally, last week, we talked about what God does through us. He also does in us and vice versa, that there is a, a mutuality to the things that happen in us and the, hap- and the things that happen through us. And now finally, today, we're going to talk about um, this final axiom uh, in this series about living a sacramental life, which refers to this. How do we enter into this vision? How do we practice this? How do we enter in? And uh, the basic answer is that we enter in with our bodies. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We respond to good news by acting as if it's true in very concrete and tangible and everyday ways. We learn to dwell in love through embodied experimental participation. Our participation in God's life happens as we respond to taking good news, um, as we respond to the good news by taking steps with our actual bodies. Not by getting our thinking straight, not by getting our feelings straight, not by behaving correctly, but by actually trusting right here, right now, what Jesus says and taking a step of trust. Putting Jesus, practice, putting Jesus teaching into practice and trusting uh, that he'll lead us into life. So friends, our good news today is this, that in Jesus, God has given us everything we need to live in moment-by-moment communion with him. The teachings of Jesus aren't bummers and burdens for us to bear. They're words of liberty and life that as we put them into practice, open the way for us to receive all that we most deeply long for to participate in the divine nature. That's where the teachings of Jesus lead us. How many of you have seen the 1984 film The Karate Kid? Yeah, quite a few of us. I uh, saw this film and immediately started doing karate in my living room. I can't remember how old I was, probably about 10, and uh, begged my parents to let me take karate lessons. Um, they very wisely put me off for a few days. Well, let's just think about that. And I did not want to take karate after a few days. But, you know, at the end there, I was pretty inspired to take karate. And I did hear that after the karate kid, um, a lot of uh, karate places that taught karate just skyrocketed in terms of interest. And so 
Uh, if you're not familiar, or even if you are, um, I'll recap. Uh, Daniel LaRusso and his mother, Lucille, they move across the country and they move to Los Angeles. Daniel is con- consistently bullied by a gang of kids who practice this kind of vicious form of karate. Yeah, and in a per- pivotal early scene, they chase Daniel down and they savagely beat him. It's actually really disturbing to watch. Um, until Mr. Miyagi, the unassuming Okinawan immigrant, who also happens to be the handyman of the apartments where Daniel and his mother live, intervenes and surprisingly defeats this gang uh, with ease. He seems to know karate, and he intervenes and defends Daniel. So Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi, he says, I want to learn karate. Teach me karate so I can defend myself. Mr. Miyagi initially refuses and tries to resolve the conflict by talking with the bullies and the sensei at their dojo, uh, the Cobra Kai dojo. Uh, This peace offering is brushed aside, and Mr. Miyagi eventually convinces Daniel to enter instead the All-Valley Karate Championships, where he can compete with Johnny, this kid who's been bullying him, and the other students on equal terms. And then Mr. Miyagi says, I will train you if you enter this tournament, and you can compete with these kids on their terms, I guess. So Daniel agrees. Daniel says, great, I'm going to learn karate. It's going to be awesome. He shows up the next morning to Mr. Miyagi, and he's like ready for training. He's like, show me how to do karate. Mr. Miyagi tells him, uh, well, first of all, you need, to, you need to decide if you want to do this. And this, is, this, this can't be yes one day and no the other. You have to decide if you really want to do this. It's going to be, yes, I will learn karate, and no questions. Do not question me. Daniel says, yes, I, I'll do it. It's fine. That's our deal. You teach karate, I learn karate. Sounds good. So Daniel agrees, and the first lesson, Mr. Miyagi says, all right, great. Here's all this. He's got like a dozen old cars in his yard. And he says, for your first lesson, I want you to wash and wax all of these cars. Of course, Daniel's a little confused about this. And so he says, first, wash all the cars, then wax. Wax on, wax off, right? Wax on, wax off. And Daniel initially has some questions, right? Well, what does this have to do with... He says, no questions. Wax on, wax off. And so Daniel spends the entire day washing and waxing the cars. Wax on, wax off, breathe in, breathe out. Daniel uh, spends the entire day doing this, and the lessons over the next four days are similar. He shows up expecting to learn karate, and instead it's sand the floor. Sand the floor. Okay, sand the floor, great. Paint the fence, right? Up and down, paint the fence. Back and forth. Paint the house, right? So he's got these four lessons where all he's really doing, in his mind, is doing his chores, doing chores for Mr. Miyagi. And so late one evening, as Daniel is getting close to finish, finishing this final lesson of painting the house, he's painting Mr. Miyagi's house, Mr. Miyagi comes home from fishing and points out that he missed a spot. And Daniel, ex- this is too much for Daniel, he explodes, right, in a rage. He says, what? I came here to learn karate, but instead I've just been your slave. We made a deal here. You're supposed to teach, and I'm supposed to learn, Remember? But for four days, I've not been learning anything. Instead, I've been busting my butt. I haven't learned a thing. Mr. Miyagi says, you've learned plenty. Daniel says, plenty? I've learned how to sand your decks, maybe. How about wash all your cars, paint your house, paint your fence? Sure, I've learned plenty. Mr. Miyagi says, daniel son, not everything is as it seems. And Daniel starts to leave, but Mr. Miyagi calls him back. And he says, show me sand the floor. And as Daniel does the motions that he's learned, in his muscle memory, right, from doing all of these chores for Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches and kicks at him, and he learns, oh, I can actually block these things. Now, it's a bit cheesy. I don't think that's actually how you learn karate. But a light bulb dawns, right? 
it's a, it's a movie, it's from 1984, let's just, you know, we'll give it some grace, okay? There's a lot of other problems with the movie too, but, but for our purposes today, it's important to note that Daniel has been learning karate the whole time, and he didn't realize it, right? The whole time he assumed the chores had nothing to do with learning karate. They were maybe like, maybe he wants me to do all these chores to pay for the karate lessons, I don't really know. Uh, but it caused him to question Mr. Miyagi's character, right? Caused him to resent Mr. Miyagi because of the story that he was telling himself about why he was doing these chores. But in actuality, in submitting to Mr. Miyagi's instruction, even when he didn't understand it, even when he resented him for it, he'd been learning karate the whole time. I say that story because I think our relationship with God is sometimes, it sometimes feels like this. Our scripture passages this morning encourage us to listen to God's commands. In Deuteronomy, God lays things out for his people and says, listen, uh, choose life. I, I lay before you two ways. You can choose life, you can choose death. It's up to you. Please choose life, right? And in, in 1 Peter, there, there's a similar call to say, add to your faith. God's given you these great and precious promises. Add to your faith. And of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does the same thing. He says, there's two ways here. Choose life. Our scripture passages encourage us to listen to God's commands, to listen to the teaching of Jesus. But sometimes the teaching of Jesus feels like it doesn't really have anything to do with the immediate problem or need that I have in my life, the thing that I'm facing right now, and so we dismiss it and we don't put it into practice. We're busy trying to provide a good life for ourselves and for those that we love. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock. Your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And we're like, well, I don't, you know, like Jesus is saying, wax, wax the car. Wax on, wax off. We're like, eh, I don't know if that has to do with what I want you to do for me, Jesus. We're trying to win important political battles, maybe, against those ridiculous progressives or against those bigoted conservatives. We're trying to do God's work here. This is important stuff. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Sand the floor. <laughs> We're trying to find peace by living, leaving the past behind. Let bygones be bygones. And Jesus says, if we, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go and be reconciled to them. Paint the fence. We come to Jesus wanting his help with our lives. I want to follow you as a disciple. Please help me. We oftentimes really do want to be his disciples, but his instructions sometimes don't seem to make sense to us. I feel like they're not a good idea at the time. And so Jesus' teachings start to feel like bummers and burdens. They start to feel like arbitrary rules that we're supposed to follow because God apparently likes people to follow rules. and They don't really have much to do with our everyday lives, I think. It's oftentimes what we start to think. And so like Daniel, we, we leave training. We stop showing up for training. We download a few karate podcasts, subscribe to a couple karate magazines, and we hope that will be enough to do okay in the All-Valley Karate Championships. But friends, in Jesus, God has given us everything that we need to live in moment-by-moment -moment communion with him. The teachings of Jesus aren't bummers or burdens we must bear. They're words of liberty and life that as we put them into practice, open the way for us to receive all that we most deeply long for, to participate in the divine nature. Jesus knows that we all have this tendency to get frustrated and trick ourselves into merely listening to his words, which is why he spends in the Sermon on the Mount passage that we just read, it's, it's one-sixth 
of the entire sermon, where he gives no new information, no new teaching, but instead spends one-sixth of the end of the sermon just saying, do, put into practice what I have taught. Don't let these words just wash over you. Don't just appreciate them. Don't just go home and talk about them with your friends. Put them into practice. And he offers four metaphors toward this end. So very quickly, there's two gates. There's a wide gate that leads to destruction, easy to find. You don't have to try. And there's a narrow gate that leads to life, and it requires some intentionality. The narrow gate is not believing the right things, not doctrinal purity. The narrow gate is not behaving correctly, external behaviors. The narrow gate is obedience to Jesus. It's responsiveness to the good news that Jesus is proclaiming, taking him seriously and trusting him. There's two prophets. Jesus warns us about those who would mislead us. There's false prophets who look good on the outside, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves seeking not to serve the people of God, but to use the people of God for their own purposes. How do you tell? This sounds very bad, right? How do I know if I've got a false prophet on my hands? Jesus says you recognize them by their fruit. And their fruit is not how many Twitter followers they have or how famous they are or how many people attend their church. The fruit is their life. As you get to know them, are they filled with love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness? Are they moving in that direction? What kind of person are they becoming? That's the fruit. So there's two gates, there's two prophets, there's two disciples, the next metaphor. Those who simply say the right words and do impressive works. That's one type of disciple. And the other type of disciple that actually does the will of my Father in heaven, as Jesus says, which involves putting our wants on the table, not just words and works, but our wants, and having those transformed by uh, His grace, where the inside is beginning to match the outside. And the final exhortation is two builders, final metaphor, two builders, two people who are building houses, and they put their foundations on very different places, and it leads to very different results, right? The winds came, and the winds blew against the house, and the foundation that was on sand fell with a great crash. The foundation that was on the rock was able to withstand the storm. And the only difference between the two builders is what they did with Jesus' teaching. Did they put it into practice? Were they intentional about it? That's the only difference. Presumably, they both agree with the teaching. Presumably, they're on the same page doctrinally with Jesus. Presumably, they maybe even enjoyed it and talked to their friends about it. Maybe they'll show up next week and think, this is awesome, this is great. But if you don't put it into practice, Jesus is saying, it will be of no use to you. You won't actually touch my life and be able to participate in it. You're able to participate in life as you put the teachings of Jesus into practice. Dallas Willard said it this way. That sometimes feels like a high bar, right? A lot of the writing about the Sermon on the Mount has been, uh, well, we can't really do this, so don't try. But I I remember Dallas Willard was uh, asked one time uh, about his approach to evangelism. He basically said, when I find someone who's interested in Jesus, I tell them, read through the Gospels, until you find something that Jesus says to do that seems like a good idea to you. And then do it. And when you fail, ask for help. I was like, that's pretty good, that's pretty good advice. <laughs> and when you fail, ask for help. So it's not, it's not moral performance here. 
Putting Jesus' teachings in practice isn't a way of performing for God. It is our participation in God. And it will involve failure. And it will involve asking for help. And it will involve learning and growing as we do that. So both builders hear, but what you do is the crucial issue. Actual embodied participation in love. This is discipleship. Another way to say it is that the obedient life is the abundant life. Obedient here just means taking Jesus seriously, putting his teaching into practice, trying it, failing at it, wondering about that failing, walking in community with others who can wonder with you about that. This is how we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to actually participate in the life that Jesus offers us. So our embodied participation then, our doing in the kingdom, in response to Jesus, is not a performance for God. It is participation in God. It's not merely imitating Christ, but inhabiting Christ. It's not shooting our way into the kingdom. You guys know what I'm talking about there? I should really. I know I should. We don't should our way into the kingdom. We actually share in the life as we offer our bodies. In other words, when you put the teachings of Jesus into practice, you are learning karate. To use our metaphor, that's a metaphor. (laughs) To put the teachings of Jesus into practice, you are learning karate whether you realize it or not. You are reaching out to touch the things that you most deeply long for, that you may not even be aware of as you put the teachings of Jesus into practice. And we deceive ourselves if we think that just listening to or agreeing with Jesus' teachings will help us learn karate. Again, that's a metaphor. I'm mixing them. You might get a reputation for being really into karate, but you won't know how to actually do it. So friends, our good news today is this, that Jesus, in Jesus, God has given us everything we need. God has given us everything we need to live in moment-by-moment communion with Him. The teachings of Jesus aren't bummers or burdens for us to bear. They are words of liberty and life that as we put them into practice, open the way for us to receive all that we most deeply long for, participating in the divine nature. So submit to waxing on and waxing off. Do what your sensei tells you. Trust that Jesus is leading you into life. Trust your rabbi. You'll learn the kingdom. You will. Because ultimately, this is a life of interactive communion with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, the God that Jesus reveals through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not moral performance for God. It's mutual participation in God's life. Amen? So how do we respond to this, friends? Two things that I want to say. Uh, First of all, worship. Our entire liturgy, the way that we do this together on Sunday mornings, is set up to train us in this way. Notice that we don't give you, at the end of the sermon, I don't give you things to apply to your life. Here's how you can apply this to your life. No, instead of application points, what we have are immediate responses. Right after I'm done here, in three minutes, you're going to be given a prayer that you can pray out loud with your body in order to submit yourself to this good news, to take something in your life that you realize, I I haven't really submitted this to the Lordship of Christ. I'm going to do so now in prayer. That makes sense. We offer our bodies. It's immediate. We do this right. We do this right now. Submitting our lives to the Lord by praying out loud. And there's all kinds of these opportunities uh, to participate with your body in worship, making the sign of the cross, something that we've already done several times today. Kneeling, standing, singing, speaking, 
eating, drinking. We don't come to church to learn something new about God. We come to participate in the divine nature through worship. That's the first thing. The second thing is DNA groups. So a lot of you have been through this series, um, Living a Sacramental Life. You've been in these seven-week DNA groups. This week is the final week of those kind of short-term DNA groups. Um, But even if you haven't been through those seven weeks, but especially if you have, (laughs) I want to invite you into one of our long-term DNA groups, which lasts nine to 12 months, um, because I've found that I would never really know how to actually do this day in, day out in my own life unless I was in community with others who were learning how to do it at the same time, being in relationship with others, where we regularly practice uh, these things. It's crucial because nobody can learn karate on their own. So that's what we do in these long-term DNA groups. Um, I'd encourage you to join one. If you're interested in that, just talk to me after the service, and I can point you in the right uh, direction. These groups are how we learn how to live in continuously interactive relationship with God instead of just attending sporadic events for God. How we learn how to surrender to that good news. How we learn this embodied participation. How does it look in my life? What good news is God speaking to me? We gather in community to talk through that. So I'd encourage you to join one of those. It's where we actually get traction in living a sacramental life. It's where we learn how to connect what happens here at the altar with what happens in our everyday lives, our kitchen tables, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. Friends, in Jesus, God has given us everything, everything that we need to live in moment-by-moment communion with Him. The teachings of Jesus aren't bummers or burdens that we must bear. They're words of liberty and life that as we put them into practice, open the way for us to receive all that we most deeply long for, to participate in the divine nature. That pathway is open to you today. It's open to all of us. There's no entrance requirements. You don't need to achieve any kind of certain status. It's open to you today. You can start by praying. You can start by coming to the altar. You can start today to open up your life to God's life. Amen? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.